to live in the information age. I'm sure that you've heard that before. And there's a very good reason for that, uh, if you're not aware. The volume of information that is produced every single minute of every single day um, by the internet and other avenues as well, but mainly by the internet, the volume of information that is produced is just staggering. It's mind-blowing. I'm going to give you some numbers to try to overwhelm you here this morning, all right? There are over 5 billion, with a B, 5 billion searches done on the internet every day. Every day. 77% of those searches are done through Google. So if you don't own Google stock, it might be a good time to buy some. All right, so every minute... Every minute of every day, there are over 4 million videos being watched on YouTube. Every minute, 450,000 tweets are sent on Twitter. And every minute, 46,000 plus pictures are posted on Instagram. Now, if you don't know what YouTube, Twitter, or Instagram are, you're living in a very happy place in your life. So just avoid, nah, Pat says I am. <laughs> So just avoid knowing what those are if you can. Every minute of every day, we human beings send 16 million text messages, and we send 156 million emails every minute of every day. And every minute of every day, there are 103 million spam emails sent. Now, the point of all that is that there's so much information that is out there, and it's coming at us like a hundred-foot tsunami, and our brains feel like we're a little paper origami boat sitting there waiting for this information to just wash over us and destroy us in many ways. And as you think about all that information coming at you by the internet, by TV, by newspapers, whatever it may be, Perhaps the biggest challenge with all of that information is figuring out what is authoritative and what is credible. And when I say figuring out what information is authoritative, it's looking at it and saying what information is going to impact my life and what information sits on me with weight and makes me change the way I think, the way I feel, and the way I act. That is difficult. Because there's so much coming at you, it's impossible to even sort through it, much less to figure out what should change the way I live and what is credible information. What has the ability to change your attitudes and actions? It's hard. So today, we're going to be talking about that subject of authority. And the passage that we're looking at today has everything to do with that topic of authority. The religious leaders in Jerusalem feel like they have all the authority when it comes to the temple and when it comes to the teaching and the practice of religion in the nation of Israel at this time, during the time of Jesus. And Jesus comes along and he challenges that authority. And so it comes to a head today in our text, and they ask him about why and where he has authority. So open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. This morning, if you're not already there, Mark 11, verses 27 to 33. And I'm going to give you a, a summary sentence of what we're going to look at, okay? This will hopefully help you to hang your hat on this, and then we'll, we'll work through this kind of in two parts, okay? So if I had to summarize this text, 
Here's what I would say. Jesus, through this passage, through this interaction with the religious leaders, he reveals his divine authority, and that divine authority shapes how we respond, how we ought to respond to him. Okay, so Jesus reveals his divine authority that shapes how we respond to him. Now, if you look at that sentence, it kind of comes in two parts. Jesus reveals his divine authority is the first part, and then the second part is it shapes how we respond to him. And we're going to look at that in both pieces this morning. So we're going to begin in verse 27. We're going to walk through the story, and then I'll circle back around and make some application and flesh out the second part of that, how we respond to Jesus. So let's start in verse 27. You can remember as we get into this passage that we're in the Passion Week of the life of Jesus. So it's the last week of his earthly life here before his death, and it's also Passover week for Israel. Okay, so there would have been a lot of people in Jerusalem at this time. Jesus and his disciples are staying outside of the city. They're staying in a little town called Bethany, and each morning they get up and they walk back into the city and make their way to the temple. Look at verse 27. And they came again, so this would have been Tuesday of Passion Week, but they came again to Jerusalem. They head right back to the temple. Look at the rest of verse 27. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now, if you remember, last time we talked about how big the temple complex was, 1,500 feet by 1,000 feet. So it's huge. And in this sort of outer court of the temple, there would have been a number of places for groups to gather. And Probably what's happening here is Jesus is walking through the temple, going to a place where he's going to sort of set up shop for the day. And he's going to gather his disciples there, and he's going to probably gather other people as well, and he's going to teach throughout the day there. He's going to find a spot and spend the day there instructing and teaching. Well, as he's making his way to this spot, you can see there, as he's walking through the temple, this group of religious leaders come up to him and confront him. If you look at the group here, it's made up of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. These three groups would have been the ones who made up the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the ruling body, 71 members in Israel. And this was probably a delegation. It wasn't the full Sanhedrin, but it would have been a delegation that came to find Jesus. And this group, the Sanhedrin, they would have had all of the religious authority in Israel, and they they would have had quite a bit of political authority as well. So this is a powerful group of people, and this is a representative piece of that body. Now Jesus, it's interesting, has already predicted that he's going to suffer at the hands of this very group. I mean, if you think back to Mark 8, verse 31, when he first predicts that he's going to die to his disciples... He says this, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. It's the same three groups of people which make up the Sanhedrin, and he's going to be killed and after three days rise again. So if you're reading through this with attention to a little bit of detail, when you see these three groups, it sort of has an ominous feel to this confrontation here. So look what they ask him, verse 28. They said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? So you can see here, the issue of authority is front and center in their questions. And they want to know 
about certain activities that Jesus has been engaged in. They say a couple of times, these things. Well, what are they talking about there? Well, keep in mind that Jesus, the day before, had gone into the temple, into this very same area of the temple, and he had put on quite a show there. He had disrupted trade. He had turned over tables. He had run people out. People weren't able to walk through the temple, and so it would have caused quite a disturbance in the temple when Jesus did this, quite an uproar, and no doubt the Sanhedrin would have heard of this. And no doubt they already knew about Jesus, they knew about his ministry in Galilee, and so they sent this delegation there to ask. The point is, you, you can't just go into the temple and do this, right? I mean, the common person doesn't have any sort of legal authority to go into the temple and to disrupt commerce and trade like this. And so they ask him two questions. They ask him, by what authority are you doing this? And then they ask him this second question, which is really a clarification of the first question. Who gave you this authority to do this? And so what they're, what they're actually asking him is, this is kind of a paraphrase, we have all of the authority, you don't have any authority, and so who gave you the authority? Because it certainly wasn't us. We didn't authorize you to act in this way. So where, where are you getting this idea? You have no legal standing in Jerusalem. You don't matter. You're just a prophet or whatever you are from Galilee. You don't have any ability to determine anything in this city of Jerusalem. We hold all the cards here. So you need to stand down. And Jesus does something interesting here in verses 29 and 30. Look down there. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's the question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, this would have been pretty normal rabbinic practice. You're having a debate. One group asks a question, and then the other group responds with a question. So Jesus isn't necessarily trying to evade what they're asking here. This is pretty normal for this time. And I don't want you to think of this question as him trying to get around answering. He's not trying to evade what they're asking him here. It's not accidental what he responds by asking them. He's actually making a point here by asking his question, okay? He puts the issue of authority front and center by asking this question. By asking about the baptism of John the Baptist, Jesus is asking them to make a judgment call on John's entire ministry. I mean, baptizing, I mean, he's called John the Baptist after all, right? I mean, this was the heart and soul of his ministry. So what Jesus is asking them is, will you make a judgment call on the authority and on the ministry of John the Baptist? Was John a prophet of God? Did he speak with heavenly authority? Did he baptize with heavenly authority? Or is he just another guy trying to gather a following and it's going to fizzle out over time? Now, why does Jesus ask about John's ministry? We'll go back to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, I want you to turn back there for just a moment. And the Gospel of Mark actually tells us about this very clear connection between John the Baptist and between Jesus. Verse 4, John appeared baptizing 
in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist, ate locusts and wild honey. All of that is symptomatic of being a prophet. Verse 7, and he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John is a forerunner for one who is coming, who is mightier than he is. And then look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. John's entire ministry was to prepare people for the coming of Messiah. Look back up at verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So John is the forerunner sent by God to proclaim good news to the people of Israel and repentance to them. He's preparing the way. And so, Back in Mark 11, Jesus doesn't ask this question to try to evade. It's not a random question. He asks this question because when they make a judgment call on John's ministry, they're going to be making a judgment call on Jesus's ministry as well. The two are so intimately connected that when they consider John's authority, they have to consider the authority of Jesus. If John's baptism was from men, then Jesus has no authority at all. He has no right to do what he is doing. But if John's baptism, if his ministry is actually predicted by the Old Testament, if it's actually promised, if it's actually from God and from heaven, if he's supposed to announce the promised king, the one who is mightier than he is, who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, then that puts Jesus' ministry in an entirely new light. It's not from men. If John's a prophet, then Jesus is someone greater than a prophet. So how do the religious leaders respond to this question and what's at stake here? Look at verse 31. They discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? And of course, the implications of that are, And why don't you believe me? Verse 32, but shall we say from man? And they don't even finish. They can't even bring themselves to finish the statement. And so Mark gives us what they were thinking. They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So the first part of verse 33, they answered Jesus, we do not know. Let's be honest here. They they were pretty sure of what they thought of John the Baptist. They thought They would have answered this, he's from men, but they couldn't do that because they're scared of the crowds because, of course, you know, the people thought John the Baptist was a prophet from God. Jesus responds in verse 33 by telling them, look there, Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And this isn't just petty gamesmanship, right? Like, I'm not going to answer if you don't answer. Jesus knows that they're not going to believe him. They're not going to accept what he tells them when he speaks about his authority to them. If they can't make a judgment call on John the Baptist, then they're certainly not going to believe Jesus when he tells them that he has divine authority because he is divine. (laughs) They're not going to accept that. 
And so what you have here is you have a scene of conflict between two rival claims to authority. And what's amazing about this is the religious leaders, these are the guys who are supposed to be the most in tune with God's Word, with the Old Testament. They're the authority on the Old Testament. They're supposed to know these prophecies. These guys are exposed publicly as being unable to even tell if John is from heaven or from men. They, they can't even make that call publicly. Sort of embarrassing. They don't have any discernment here at all, as it would have been seen from the crowd. Now, while Jesus doesn't come right out and say that he has divine authority here, you can see that the implication of this whole passage is that he is from heaven and he does have divine authority. And that matches up perfectly with what we've seen in the Gospel of Mark so far. If you remember back early on in the Gospel of Mark, there are several times where Mark speaks and writes about the authority of Jesus. Let me show you some of these. Verse 22 of chapter 1, they were astonished, the crowds, at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Verse 27, they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Chapter 2, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, which is only something God can do. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He heals this man to show them that his claim to be able to forgive sins is is real and authoritative as well. And then chapter 3, he even has the authority to delegate his authority to others. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. He might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And so, let me remind you of our summary statement here of this text. Jesus reveals, through this interaction with the religious leaders, he reveals his divine authority, and it shapes how we respond to him. In Mark 11, the religious leaders do respond to Jesus' authority, don't they? They respond by being unwilling to answer and unwilling to accept his divine authority. They don't accept John, and they don't accept the authority of Jesus. Their hearts are hard. And so at this point now, we we need to consider and ponder our response to his authority. I mean, if Jesus is who he said he is, if he's who he is presented to be in the Gospel of Mark, the divine Son of God who fulfills Old Testament passages and prophecies, then we have to evaluate our response to him in light of his authority. And so now we're going to take the second part of this. What are some implications of this for us and Christ's authority as we respond to it? And I want to do that by asking you three questions, okay, to help us to help us think through how we respond to Jesus and his authority. What does it actually mean? Sorry, wrong. uh, (laughs) What do it mean that Jesus has authority? It's good. So (laughs) what does it mean that Jesus has authority? It's our first question here to help us. So we see it's pretty obvious, right? I mean, if you're reading this honestly, even though it's subtle, Jesus has divine authority. That's the intent. That's the point of this text. So what does that actually mean for my life today? Well, 
to understand that, we have to think about this word authority. What does it mean? Let me give you a definition here. J.I. Packer says this, a relational word. Authority is a relational word. We don't often think that way, but it is a relational word. Authority signifies the right to rule. It is expressed in claims and is acknowledged by compliance and conformity. Okay, let's break this down a little bit. It's a relational word. Authority is a relational word. The authority of Jesus is not some abstract reality that's out there. It doesn't just mean that he has the authority to create mountains and to fashion storms and all sorts of weather. He has that authority. Jesus's authority is relational. This has an impact. It specifically comes to bear on you and on me. It means something that Jesus has divine authority. It means something for you and I in our lives this week. He has the right to rule over us because he is the creator. He made us. And so he has the authority, the right to order our lives and to make claims on us that we should conform to. To properly order ourselves, to properly respond to his authority, we have to see the claims that he makes and then we comply and we conform our lives to those claims. When he says we are to be holy, we comply by pursuing holiness in our lives. I mean, you, you know how authority works. Everyone is under some sort of authority. Think about it on the football field. Who has the authority on a football field? The referee does. I mean, when the referee calls something, everyone else has to comply to his claim. If he claims that someone was offsides or a foul was committed, everyone else has to comply and they have to order their lives according to that claim. The game wouldn't work very well if we allowed any player, any coach, or heaven forbid, any fan to make a claim on what was happening and on fouls being called in that game, on rules being violated. The referee has authority there. And unfortunately, we often do allow everything else to make claims in our lives. We do act as if any number of people or institutions can make a claim with authority on the way we live, and we comply with the claim that others make. And that's our second question. I want you to consider this. So what does it mean that Jesus has authority? It means that he makes claims on our lives relationally, and we must comply to those But the second question is, what else do we look to as authoritative? What do we allow to influence us? Ideally, we would all respond perfectly to the authority, the divine authority of Christ in our lives. We wouldn't be like the religious leaders, but unfortunately, we often are. We may give verbal assent to his authority, but then we order our lives as if he doesn't really have authority over them. And so our lives are lived with a mixture of authorities. We attempt to serve two, three, four masters throughout the week. What are some of those other authorities? I just want to look at two real quickly this morning. The first one of those would be the world. The world. What do I mean by that? The world is it's a system of unredeemed humanity And it's the structures of that unredeemed group of people who 
It encourages our sin. The world exercises authority over us by making righteousness appear abnormal and by making unrighteousness appear normal and good and to be desired. And this is such a problem that the the Apostle John addressed it in 1 John 2. Notice his language here. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world makes claims on our loves, on our affections. John warns us here, don't love the world. The world gains authority over us by training our love and affections. No doubt some of you have served in our military, so you know very much what training looks like. We had a a student in our ministry in California, um, and he ended up being uh, in the Special Forces, very, very gifted kid, um, and uh, served the country well um, in in his pursuit of that. Um, but the training that he went through to, to reach that level of ability and of skill, the training that he went through obviously changed him physically, but it also changed him mentally and emotionally. He was a different person after he went through the training that he went through. The world slowly and subtly trains us. And it trains us, not through the boot camp like a military, but it trains our loves. And it becomes an authority over us so that we willingly comply and we willingly conform to what the world wants and how the world teaches us to live. And so ask yourself this morning, where have you given authority over to the world to train and to shape your love and your affections and your desires. And sometimes it's really hard to see because it's, we think, well, I'm, I just want this. I just, I just like this. This is just the way that I live. But over time, the world has shaped us and has formed us so that we willingly cede authority over to the world system. But beyond the world, we often give authority over to our feelings, don't we? So much of the time, our feelings shape the way we live to the point where they have ultimate authority in our lives. Feelings are good. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not trying to paint feelings as a bad thing. Emotions are a gift from God. But so often, we don't understand how emotions are to fit into the way we live life. Emotions are meant to be experienced, but they're meant to be understood Your mind has to understand your emotions, and that's how we respond to them. Why am I angry? Why am I anxious? What is driving this? I don't just let those emotions dictate what I do. I think about them, and I process through them, and I understand the emotions that I'm having. Emotions are a wonderful complement to our thinking, but they're a terrible master over our thinking. But we so often get used to living by our emotions. We just respond emotionally to things. We let our emotions have mastery 
over us. We allow anxiety and fear to dictate life every single day. When we come to make a decision, we do that based on, well, do I or do I not have a feeling of peace about this decision? Rather than going to God's Word, using the wisdom that He gives us in His Word, seeking good counsel, and making a wise decision. We we pursue that sense of peace and good feeling about something rather than going by what God's Word has said, using His wisdom. So how do, we, how do we stop letting emotions dictate the way we live? Cultivating good and healthy emotions, but understanding them, processing through them, and putting them in their place. How do we do that? There's a book that is very, very helpful called Spiritual Depression. Uh, it's by a mid-century, 20th century pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a medical doctor, and then he became a pastor. Uh, it's a helpful book, and in that book, he addresses, the whole goal of that book is to address how believers can come to a point of sadness and of being overwhelmed by emotions. And so it's a very helpful read. But there's this section where he talks about Psalm 42, and he's commenting on Psalm 42. And I want to read you an extended uh, quote from that. Listen to this. The main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourself? Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, And this is from Psalm 42. Why are thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way, then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. Then, having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, the psalmist, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. That's helpful counsel, isn't it? Whether it's the world or whether it's your feelings, my feelings, or any number of other places, we are tempted to comply with a variety of authorities in life. We're tempted to conform to other authorities rather than give authority to Jesus Christ where it rightfully belongs. And that brings us to our last question that I want to ask this morning. If Jesus has a divine authority. If he is the place that we need to go to be in submission, to be under his authority and no one else's, 
How do we do that? What does it look like? How exactly does Jesus exercise authority over us? It's not like he's physically here in this room and he can tell us what to do. How does Jesus exercise divine authority over us now? And that's our last question. To help us to respond. Let's say that there's a social psychologist who does a study and some research. They do this extended study. And in this research, they come to the conclusion, this guy does, that children should not be taught to read until they're 12 years old. It's better for the children, better for everyone. They'll actually make further progress if you wait to teach them to read until they're 12 years old. Now, this guy is very, very firm on what he believes. He's done all the research for it. He cannot go around and verbally explain to every educator and every parent. He can't go and verbally explain his research to them and support his research and talk through his research. And so what does this guy do in order to make the findings of his research known to as many people as he possibly can? Well, he writes his research down in an article or a book, and he publishes it for as many people as possible to read. That article or that book carries the weight or the authority of the research that this guy has done. That's how it works. In a similar way, the Bible carries the weight or the authority of God. But obviously, there's quite a difference between the research that this guy has done and when you open up your Bible and when you read your Bible. God is the creator of the world. He formed and fashioned every detail of who you are as a human being. And so he has the right, he has the authority to direct how we think, how we feel, and how we act. He has the divine right to tell us how to live, and you and I have the obligation to respond to his authority by living according to what he says. And so... How do we, how does Jesus exercise divine authority over us? When we open this book and when we read this book or when you hear this book taught accurately, it is as if God is standing in the room speaking directly to you with all the weight and authority of, of Him as Creator. No one is obligated to respond to that sociologist's, social psychologist's research. I don't have to change how I act or how I feel based on that. I could read that research and go, oh, that's interesting, and go on my merry way and continue to teach my six-year-old how to read, right? <laughs> it's, it's, what I, it's what I have the right to do. But when God speaks, when the creator God of the universe speaks, we are obligated to respond rightly to what he says. Speaking of that weight, that authority that he says. One author said this about the Bible. Similarly, when God speaks to rational beings, his word conveys meaning. In his word, he expresses his wisdom, knowledge, desires, intentions, love, and grace. You see there, it's not just about God giving us commands to obey. The authority of the Bible is so much more than simply responding to a command that is given there. That meaning is authoritative. When God shares his love with us, we have the obligation to treasure it. 
When he questions us, we should answer. When he expresses his grace, we are obligated to trust it. When he tells us his desires, we should conform our lives to them. When he shares with us his knowledge and intentions, we ought to believe that they are true. God reveals the way things truly are through his word. And so at the most basic level, what does that mean? It means God in his word tells us who he is in his character. And he reveals to you and I the depth of our sinfulness, our brokenness, and the judgment that is there because of our brokenness. And he reveals to us our need for reconciliation with him and our need for our sins to be forgiven. And he reveals to us that the only way for that to happen is through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the Bible fundamentally reveals to us the gospel. The Bible reveals to us the good news of the work of Jesus Christ, and that good news is authoritative for us. It's authoritative because God spoke it, and it's authoritative because it brings good news to us. It's the good kind of authority, the kind of authority that gives us life and hope and satisfaction and joy. And so my encouragement to each one of us today would be respond to that authority rightly. Respond to that authority this week by reading the word from God, the word of God, meditating on it, loving this word, and then obeying. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your authority. Your authority is is good for us. The authority of Jesus Christ is a wonderful gift to us. You have designed us. You know what is best for us. You have made reconciliation with you possible through Jesus Christ. And we are obligated to respond to that with love and trust and obedience. And that is the path to true life to true joy, to true satisfaction, and to a life that is flourishing and is well-lived. And so I pray that we would not see your authority as something difficult to live under, something that is burdensome, but I pray that we would see your authority as an easy yoke and a light burden, and a burden that is there to give us joy and life and love. We thank you for the work of Christ. We thank you for who he is and what he's done. Even now, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, I pray that these things would would sit on our hearts and that the good news of the gospel would be authoritative in our lives and in our thinking. We love you. In Christ's name we pray.